The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're doing a series on Berean Distinctives, and this is part three this morning. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at the doctrines that Berean Bible Church holds that distinguish us from mainstream Christianity. Now, obviously, there are other churches that hold to some of these doctrines, but i got to say, I don't know of another church that holds to all of these distinctives that we, we're going to cover in this series. And if you do, please let me know. I'd, I'd like to know that. That'd be great. Now, in our first study, we looked at the doctrine of free grace which stands in opposed to the teaching of lordship salvation. You're not saved, you're not kept by what you do. You're saved and kept by Christ. And belief of the truth, nothing more and nothing less, is what separates the saved from the damned. That's so important because so many people today are adding to the gospel. Yeah, but you've got to do this, and if you don't do that, then you're probably not a Christian. And they have this whole list of things you have to go through. It's, It's disheartening. Last week we looked at the doctrine of sovereign election. We believe that anyone who believes in Christ does so because they have been chosen in eternity past. God brings all His elect to salvation. We believe the new birth is a sovereign act of God in which man plays no part. Once the elect receive life, they will trust in Christ as their Savior. I gave you some quotes last week from Pink about this being the most hated doctrine. If you question that, just go on YouTube from last week and read some of the comments. (laughs) People hate this doctrine. It is just too God-honoring. It's just like, who does God think He is to be in control of everything? It's just not right of Him. They don't like it, and they fight against it. So... But I'll tell you, I am more and more convinced it is the doctrine of Scripture. It's not Calvinism because Calvin got it from Augustine. It's not Augustinism because Augustine got it from the Bible. So it is just plain God's in control. He's sovereign. I'm happy with that. I didn't used to be. I kind of fought against this too, but I tell you, I'm, I'm very happy with God being in control. This morning we want to look at our third distinctive, which is our doctrine of eschatology, which is preterism. Now, most of you are aware of this. This is probably why those of you following us online, this is probably why you're following us. You know, preterism, that's kind of the thing that we do. So, so let's talk for a minute about eschatology. What exactly is eschatology? I dare say most Christians could not even define that. Uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary says this on eschatology. It's a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or humankind. That's wrong. Eschatology is not about the end of the world. It's about the end of an age. And that is so important to understand. Uh, Webster goes on and says, A belief concerning death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of humankind. Again, they get it wrong. But then they say this, specifically, any of the various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, and the last, or the last judgment. Okay, the, now they're getting it right. All right? This is what it's more about. Zodervan Academic says this, Eschatology is the study of last things. 
This involves the events pertaining to Jesus' second coming, including both what happens just before Jesus' second coming and what happens just after Jesus' second coming. That's also a pretty good definition. The word eschatology stems from the Greek eschatos, which means last or final things. It pertains to the study of the last or end things, and it's the, about the end of an age. It's about the end of the old covenant age, not the end of a world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Preterism is a system of eschatology that views the end time events as taking place in the first century. The word preterism derives from the Latin preter. It means past in fulfillment. Preterism is the teaching that the big three, the judgment, the resurrection, and the second coming, all took place in A.D. 70, signaled by the destruction of Jerusalem. So the thing about preterism is it takes the time statements in the Bible at face value. Simple as that. It just says, okay, the Bible says this is going to happen soon. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen shortly. We believe that. And they believe that Yeshua returned in the first century. We believe that because Yeshua said he would return in the first century. Now, I get this question all the time. Is the doctrine of eschatology important? I mean, who cares about end times? We don't care. That's, why is it important? I, my answer is always the same. Does truth matter? Because if truth doesn't matter, then you're in the wrong place anyway. We don't need to be studying this. We don't need to be looking into it. But if truth matters, then eschatology matters. Because it's a major theological issue in the Scriptures. R.C. Sproul says that two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. Two-thirds. Other experts say 25 to 30 percent of the whole Bible is eschatological. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, In the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books, with the exception of Galatians, which deals with a particular doctrinal problem, and the very short books such as 2nd, 3rd John, and Philemon. Ray Stedman writes this, Perhaps you have recognized in reading your Bible, and let, let me say, you should have recognized in reading your Bible. If you're reading your Bible, that's the, and that's the advantage of reading it over and over and over. This comes to the forefront. <clears throat> You recognize in reading your Bible that it is most frequently mentioned, it is the most frequently mentioned truth of all the New Testament. This great hope of the appearing again of Jesus Christ underlines every other truth in the New Testament. It is found on almost every page of our New Testament. So the second coming of Christ is a very important subject. It's something that we should understand. How can we ignore something that's mentioned so often? In the New Testament. How can we not care to understand something that's addressed 318 times in 260 chapters of the New Testament? It's just something that's there. It's something that's important. Now, people shy away from it because there's so many confusing views. you got pre, mid, post, you know, all, all these different ideas. Dispensationalism. All these different ideas. Well, <clears throat> this was a subject that I struggle with. And in the beginning weeks of 1997... I began to have a paradigm shift in my theology. And my views on the second coming of Christ began to change. Now, like most Christians, 
I believe that the second coming of Christ would be a physical event that would transform the earth. Okay, that's, that's what I thought. All right, I saw it as the end of the physical world. A cataclysmic, earth-burning, total destruction of life as we know it. And the thing that changed my thinking was the time text of the second coming. See, I began to see that throughout the New Testament, on almost every occasion where Scripture talks about the second coming, it gives a time indicator. And it's always a near-time indicator. From the perspective of the first century believers, the second coming was said to have happened while some of them were still alive. It was going to happen in that generation. It was going to happen soon, quickly, shortly. It was at hand. It was near. Everywhere, like I said, if you're familiar with Scripture, everywhere you read, you get this. When it talks about the second coming, there's a time indicator. And we're still, 2,000 years later, using those same time indicators and said, yep, he's near. Like, (laughs) that's a long near. How does that stretch out for 2,000 years? As we read the Bible, we need to keep in mind the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. We talk about this a lot. This essential approach seeks to discover what the original audience understood a passage to mean. The Bible writers were writing to a particular people. We have to understand what those people saw, what they understood that to mean, before we can start to apply it to ourselves. The concern of the evangelical interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. Most people today, most teachers today, ignore the original audience. They just, every verse of the Bible, every promise is yours. They pull it out. They give you like a, you know, um, what are those things that come in the cookies? A fortune cookie, you know, with a little fortune on it. And go your way and use that verse for the day. You know, that's just not what it's about. If the timing of the second coming is said to be near, soon, at hand, in the first century, then the nature of the second coming cannot be physical. You follow me? If it's soon, it can't be physical because soon is past and physical didn't happen. There wasn't a physical transformation in the first century. Now, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we see that the second coming was not to be a physical event. To get some context, let's start at the scripture Gary should have read. 2 Thessalonians 1. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. All right. Paul wrote this letter to the church of Thessalonians in about A.D. 50 to 51, about 20 years before A.D. 70, before the end. Now, at the time of writing to the Thessalonian believers, these believers are suffering persecution for their faith. Okay, you see, in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Who are they suffering from? Jews, thank you very much. Their Jewish brothers were coming down. No, Christ is not the Messiah. They were being persecuted for that. So Paul is comforting them because of their afflictions. And he goes on in verse 6 to 8 and he says this, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
All right, so they're being persecuted, and God said, I'm going to repay with afflictions those, the ones that are afflicting you. They're going to get it. And I'm going to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So this is good news. You get this letter, and you're like, all right, God's going to, these Jews are going to get what they're, what's coming to them. They've been persecuting us. And better than that, God is going to grant relief to us that are afflicted. You're a Thessalonian. You're in the first century. You read this, you're excited. And then some Christian from the 21st century comes back and says, no, 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 that has nothing to do with you. That's, that's thousands of years in the future. And they'd be scratching their head and say, why did he say this to us then? The grant relief to you that are afflicted as well as to us. Well, they'd be saying, okay, when is this going to happen? Well, he tells you. When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. That's the second coming. With his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. So this relief is going to come when the Lord's revealed from heaven. Now again, if that still hasn't happened as most of the church believes, how is this any comfort to the Thessalonians? It's almost deceptive for God to write a letter to people I'm going to comfort you. You're going to be relieved of this affliction. Nah, just kidding. Yeah, what is, what is the point of that? This is, this is referring to the second coming. Now, here's what's interesting. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I highly recommend. It's just a good background. They do a really good job. They state the theme of this letter, which I found very interesting. Here's what they say the theme is. The theme of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, both of them. Unable to physically be with the new believers. Paul encourages their faith and strengthens their hope in view of Christ's imminent return. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to ask them some questions about this. But yeah, I uh, listen, if you know how to read and you read Thessalonians, you have to say, uh, yeah. He told them he was coming to relieve them of the affliction they're going through. This was written to first century believers who are suffering. And the promise is relief. If that second coming is still future, how did they get relief? The relief was to come at the return of Christ because Christ was going to deal with the Jews, shut down Judaism, destroy the temple, wipe it out, and they have relief now. They're not suffering from the hands of their brothers anymore because it's over. All right? But if it hasn't happened yet, then why would he write that? Well, Paul goes on. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Yeshua. In chapter 1, he's talking about the second coming, and so he keeps on with that subject. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Christ. He's continuing the same subject. We're still talking about the second coming. And the complete Jewish Bible renders it this way. Not to be easily shaken in your thinking or anxious because of a spirit or a spoken message or a letter supposedly from us claiming that the day of the Lord has already come. All right, and you see what's happening here? They're hearing from people. They're getting letters. Somehow people are saying the second coming already happened. You missed it. Okay? Now, if the Thessalonians believed that the nature of the second coming was an earth-burning, total destruction of the earth, how were they being deceived about its arrival? 
if the second coming was as many view it today, Paul could have written back and said, you idiots, look out the window. The earth's still there. Of course he didn't come, right? But that's not what Paul did. They thought it already happened. So they must have viewed it differently than folks do today. Would you agree with that? They had to see it differently. It couldn't be an earth-burning, cataclysmic change because they thought it happened. Now, if we can allow a crack in this earth-burning coming paradigm, maybe we can begin to understand the second coming. But I think you've got to see this. I mean, you've got to see... NIV cultural background Bible sees it. It's evident. It's a relief to them when this happens. And to say, well, you know, just ask, just ask people about that. Why did God write this when he didn't mean it? It just, it just is such an attack on inspiration, I believe. Okay? I really do. When reading the Bible, we have to understand that it's written in a time far removed from ours, in a culture quite strange to us. We read things and we try to put it in our culture and understand it in our terms. We can't do that. We've got to get in the head of the first century believers, understood what it meant to them. And as we try to discover the the author's meaning, we need to learn to read like the contemporaries would have read it. To do this, we have to have some idea of the Tanakh and be familiar with the Tanakh. For example... Look at Revelation 1.7. Behold, He's coming quickly with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, and those who pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Most Christians today say, yep, He's coming. Coming on the cloud. Alright? Just wait. They view this as a literal, physical coming. But the Bible says He's coming on a horse. In another place, you know, he's riding on a white horse. So is, is the horse, he's riding the horse who's on the cloud? And if this is a physical thing, what, do you, what are you envisioning here in your mind? You got this man standing on a cloud, fl- fluffy cloud, just like surfing with it. I mean, what, what goes through people's mind when they read this? See, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, we know that the Lord is often depicted as riding on a cloud. All right, God rides clouds. What's that about? Well, as we place the biblical image in light of the ancient Near East, we realize that God's coming on a cloud is always a picture of judgment. When God talks of coming on a cloud, He's coming to judge. Okay? It's not going to be good for you when the cloud rider comes. And what's interesting here that most people miss is Baal, the god Baal was the cloud rider. So when the biblical writers say, no, no, you got it wrong. Baal's not the cloud rider. Yahweh is the one who rides the clouds into judgment. In Isaiah 19.1, it says, an oracle concerning Egypt. Okay, this is about Egypt. We got that, right? All right, behold, Yahweh is riding a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Same language we got, right? The idea now, instead of Yeshua, it's Yahweh's riding the cloud. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So what do we think here? Is this, what's happening here? Is Yahweh riding on a fluffy cloud? You know, they see this image coming on the cloud? No. We know from chapter 20 that Yahweh used the Assyrians as an instrument of His wrath 
on Egypt. But the text says Yahweh is riding a swift cloud. Egypt's going to tremble at His presence. So Yahweh came to Egypt. But He didn't come in a physical form. How did He come? He came in judgment against Egypt, but the Assyrians were the ones who were literally present. So no one wants to argue that from this text. Okay? This is the speaking of the Assyrian invasion of Egypt. God came to deal with Egypt. Now we take it to the New Testament. Christ is coming on a cloud. Again, another judgment. This time against Jerusalem. And this time it's the Roman armies. Same picture. Same scenario. But people are not familiar with their Bible. So they just take it in the New Testament. Make something up they want that sounds good to them about what's going on there. The New Testament talks about Yeshua riding a cloud. It's not a white, fluffy cloud. It's a storm cloud. He rides to judgment. The more we understand the Tanakh, which is where all the writers of the New Testament got their information from, the more we're going to understand the New Testament. Now, if the second coming of the Lord was to be soon, if the Lord and the apostles taught that it was to happen in the first century, then the nature of the second coming cannot be physical. And it's very clear that the New Testament speaks of a near coming. We talked about the time statements are everywhere. It was to be soon, so therefore we believe it happened soon, therefore it wasn't a physical event. Now, it was very physical for Jerusalem, okay? But the, the spiritual significance are much greater than that. One book of the Bible that most Christians think lays out the future of earth is what? Revelation, right? You want to know what's going to happen in the future? Read Revelation. <laughs> it just, it's sad to me because if you pay attention to the book at all, it's really clear what's going on there, okay? I mean, I know all the apocalyptic stuff is confusing, but just to make it clear, we know when it's going to happen, and that's what we need to be care about. Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. Now, I always ask people, who was the book of Revelation written to? And most Christians today think it was written to them. I mean, they really act like there's a guy driving by in a car in the morning, and he's throwing these books up on the porch, you know, like every day, it's a new one. Okay, this is today's news. No! Two thousand years ago that happened. Okay, we have to keep that in mind. It's not written to you. It's not a newspaper that just showed up. John tells us in the letter who he's writing to. Okay, it's the seven churches in Asia Minor. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So there's seven churches, real churches, that existed in Asia Minor, people gathering together just like we are, to study, to hear the Word of God, in the first century. And he names the seven churches in chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So John's told, write this down and send it to these churches. 
And there you go. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Notice in the list there's no church in Virginia Beach. No Chesapeake, Portsmouth, Newport News Church. These are churches all that are in Asia. And it's interesting, they're all there in the first century. Now what's interesting is the list here, this book was sent to the seven churches in Asia. This is on a route that a traveler would take. This is on a mail route. Okay, this is on an expedition route. It would, they would come ashore, they'd go to Ephesus, then they'd go to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They'd just follow the route. So that's, that's the way he lists it. And then to the church that's in Thyatira, Yeshua says this, Hold fast what you have until I come. Hmm. So what would that mean to the people at Thyatira? He's coming pretty soon because i got to hold on. He doesn't say hold on to death. Hold on to the end of your life. He says just hang on until I get there. Okay? Hang on until I get there. That, they'd have to say, well, they'd already knew from the beginning of the book it was soon. So, yeah, we can do that. Most commentators of Revelation violate the basic hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. In Revelation 1.1, John specifically states that the prophecies of Revelation will begin to take place in a very short while. Okay, Verse 1, he says, the things that must soon take place. And he emphasized this truth of soon coming in a variety of ways through language. He carefully varies the manner of his expressions as if to avoid any potential confusion on the matter. The Greek word translated soon here in Revelation 1.1 is takos. Now, according to Art and Gingrich's lexicon, takos is used in the Septuagint and certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. Last week, I heard Sam Frost explaining the time statements away, or attempting to, okay? And he said that, okay, takos here, it doesn't mean near or soon. It means the fastness, you know, swiftness, coming really quick. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? So we don't know when he's coming, basically. But whenever he does, it'll be quick, Okay. Well, you know, okay, you can, you can use tacos, and in in, in Frost, you know, quoted some places where tacos is, is used to mean quickness, speed. It can be used that way, but that's not the only word he uses to talk about the second coming. How do you get around this generation? How do you get around some of you standing here? You know, like I said, there's just so many different words used. It's like the Lord saying, how can I do it so they can't mess this up? How can I make it really clear that I'm coming quickly, not in a long time? All right? John uses the same word tachos in Revelation 2.16, 3.11, 22.6, 7, 12, and 20. John also uses the Greek word ingus, which is better translated near in Revelation 1.3 and 22.10. Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads... Allowed the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The term speaks of temporal nearness, and John uses it to bracket this whole book. The third Greek word is mellow. It's translated 
about to in Revelation 1.19 and 3.10. And the, phrase the phrase in 1.19 is literally the things which are about to occur. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this. Mellow also occurs in 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. If we apply the principle of audience relevance, what would the original readers have thought when they read this? John strategically places these words at the introduction and the conclusion of the book John was telling the seven churches to expect these things soon, at any moment. So, based on these time statements and many others, in 1997, I came to believe that Yeshua had come in a sense. See, I wasn't there yet. I, was, I moved into the partial position. All right, He came in a sense. I believe that 8070 was a coming, but not the coming. Now that's a good place to move to for a very short time, okay, on your way to the truth, all right? But I was still looking for a future coming. Why? Because I didn't know anybody that believed that the Lord had returned. I'm like, I'm not going to go out there all by myself. This is crazy. You know, I'm, I'm good at partial. Okay, came in 8070. I understood that. I understood the judgment 8070, but I just thought there's something more, you know, there's something more out there. But what really troubled me was the end of the book of Revelation. What really did me in was the end because, again, he begins and he ends with the same idea. Okay, this is the very last chapter. This is the chapter after he talks about the coming on the white horse, after the new heavens and new earth. Then he says this, he said to me, these words, everything I've told you so far, are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, he sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold... I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay, Lord, we get, no, 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 we're not done yet. Let's go to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Do you remember in Daniel, he told Daniel, seal up the words, Daniel? Why? Because it's a long time. He was talking about a 600-year span. It's a long time away, 600 years. But somehow, near is over 2,000, and we're still not there yet. Don't seal up the words, because the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 20, He who testifies to you says these things, Surely I'm coming soon. Five times in 16 verses, he tells the seven churches in Asia Minor that he's going to come in a very little while. He's going to come soon. He's going to come quickly. Now, in 97, this troubled me, but I didn't have a solution. Like I said, I didn't know anybody that believed he came. I never heard of that idea before. But as I began to look at this, and then I heard people actually believe the Lord returned, and I started putting it together, and I was like, wow, I guess these verses, you can just let them mean what they say. That's interesting. You know, instead of having an explanation of why soon doesn't really mean soon, you know, now you can just say, oh, okay, I can take that. It's funny because what they do with the apocalyptic language, they try to make it literal, and they take the literal language about time and try to make it apocalyptic. And they just turn the whole thing on its head, and it, for them it makes sense. 
because it doesn't fit the paradigm they have. Now, these ending verses should be very difficult for a partial preterist because the whole book is, like I said, it's bracketed in these time statements. Everything in the book, including the second coming, the judgment, the resurrection, it was all to happen soon for the first century audience. Do you know what a one-word description of a partial preterist is? Futurist. Futurist. (laughs) You're a futurist. You're still waiting for something in the future. You're partial preterist, all right? Now, as we read the Bible, again, you keep in mind the principle of audience relevance. Who's writing this? Who to whom? When? Why? We must understand the Bible was not written to us. It's written for us, but not to us. We have to seek what Scripture meant to the original audience. And then we can apply it to ourselves. Now, I'm going to run through some Scriptures here just to give you an idea of what the Bible says about these time statements. And you can see that they're just basically everywhere. And I want you, when we read these scriptures, here's what you need to ask yourself. Who's this written to? When was it written? When did they expect Christ to return? Yeshua said to his disciples in Matthew, when they persecute you in one town, go to the next. Okay, that makes sense. They're persecuting me, I'm just going to leave. Then he says, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What? Yeah, you won't get to all the time. I'll come back before you get there. And that's interesting, isn't it? This is a great scripture here, 16. It's hard for people to deal with this, but they, they find ways around it. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Then He will pay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, again, how do we deal with this? He's saying, look, I'm talking to you guys. Some of you will still be alive when I come back. So what are our options there? say, well, he was wrong. I don't like that option, right? That destroys inspiration. That destroys the deity of Christ. I've met people who say there's some of these people still out there. They're waiting. They're in a cave somewhere. They're, they're thousands of years old, and they're waiting for the Lord to return. Now, okay, if that floats your boat, you know, at least you're believing in inspiration. You know, you're believing in fairy tales too, but at least you're believing in inspiration. All right. Paul says to the Roman Christians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He tells the Romans, listen, it's going to happen soon, all right? Now, what did they think about that? Paul said to the Corinthian. Christians, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. So the Corinthians are waiting for the Lord to come, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So they're waiting because they know it's soon. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31, from now on let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the present form of the world is passing away. 
listen, they're going to go. They're in the transition period, and there's going to be some great upheavals. There's going to be some crazy things happening. A lot of wars, destruction of Jerusalem. So he's saying the present form of the world, the old covenant world, is passing away. It's going to be done. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Corinthians is coming on them, the end of the ages. Let's go to 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Who's the we here? Me and you? Me and you, right? The Corinthians and Paul, right? We are not all going to sleep. That, that's talking about death. He's not saying we're not going to take a nap. We're not going to die. But we shall be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Paul and the Corinthians in the first century, he said, we're not going to die. We're going to be changed at the coming of the Lord. Look what Paul said to the Philippian Christians. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Yeshua the Christ. God had matured the church fully by the time the Lord returned. So he's going to mature you. He's going to finish the work he started in you at the day of Christ. He tells them, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Why? The Lord's at hand. Huh. He's at hand, huh? He said to the Thessalonians, This we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we're still alive, we're still waiting to the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So they just had the idea, we're going to be around when the Lord comes back. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. That just was everywhere because they believed it was going to happen. He says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Timothy, here's what I want you to do. You keep going until Christ returns. Paul said to Titus, Titus 2.12 and 13, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. They're waiting. It was their hope. They're waiting for this to happen. As we get closer to the end, the writer of Hebrews writes to the Hebrew Christians, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. This is weak in English because the Greek here is very expressive and it's very emphatic. The author used a word which signifies a little while. But then for further emphasis, he added a particle meaning very. And then he intensifies it even more by repeating it. Thus, a literal rending would be for yet a very, very little while. And he that is coming will come. In a couple thousand years. Right now, that that, how do you even get an idea like that would fit into this text? This was written around 68. They got a couple years and it's over. So he said, I'm a little while. He's coming. He's coming. Look at James. Be patient, therefore, brother, until the coming of the Lord. Come on, you guys, be patient. Wait till God comes. Wait till the second coming. And you're like, hmm. Why would he tell him that? 
He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I want you to be patient because it's, it's close. It's at hand. Don't grumble against one another. James goes on to say, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's ready to come, people. Peter wrote to the Christians, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your full hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. Peter also says, The end of all things is at hand. Now, keep in mind, audience relevance. What did these people think when they heard this? He's coming soon. His coming was at hand. He was coming in the lifetime of those he was speaking to. He said he was coming in their generation. You can't read the New Testament without seeing the eminent expectation they had for the return of Christ. Now, this has caused many problems. Because if you're reading and you have half a brain, it's clear. The Lord's coming soon. Now, the self-proclaimed atheist Bertrand Russell, any of you heard of him? He wrote a book called, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he says this, I'm concerned with Christ as he appears in the gospel narrative as it stands. And there one does find things that do not seem very wise. For one thing, he certainly thought his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. Here's an atheist, doesn't believe God, doesn't believe in the Bible, but he can read, he knows what words mean, and he says, well, they're telling him he's going to come in their lifetime. The second, his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of the people who were living at that time. So Russell gets it, okay? He gets it, and he says he uses this to attack Christianity. Russell goes on to say, There are a great many texts that prove it. That was the belief of his early followers, and it was the basis of a good deal of his moral teaching. So Russell uses the New Testament's imminent text as proof that Yeshua could not be the Son of God. And modern Christianity in general hasn't really answered them. They haven't answered the objections. Believers today need to address directly the vast misunderstanding that exists between the realm of Christianity regarding these eschatological teachings. Because if you can read, you can see that they expected it to happen soon. It didn't happen, everybody says, so how do you deal with that? Well, you know how dispensationalism deals with it, right? He said soon. It didn't happen because God stopped the clock. Hold it. Time out. I'm, okay, Israel's rejected me. I didn't expect this. Took me by surprise. Let's stop the clock. I'm going to go deal with the church. Okay? When I'm done with the church, we'll start the clock again. Then it will be soon. So you see, it's not soon because we're not even in time to stop. That's how they deal with it. I mean, at least they tried. Right? At least they tried to deal with it. i got to give them credit for that. I mean, they couldn't just believe what the Lord said, right? So, in Matthew 24, 34, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Yeshua here, very plainly, very clearly, tells His disciples that all of the things He mentioned 
will come past in their generation. Now, if you study the context, you'll see this includes the gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ. It's so clear that it troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. How do you get around generation? The people have tried, but it's this generation, not that. Okay? In his essay, The World's Last Night, C.S. Lewis, talking about Matthew 24, 34, first of all, he quotes an objector as saying this. He says, The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. It's clear, he says, from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. I mean, again, you read it, you say, yeah, they expected it in their lifetime. And worse still, he says, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anybody else. Now, a lot of people attribute that to Lewis. It's not Lewis. It's an objector. He's quoting. I know, and it's very confusing if you read it itself. You're trying to parse this out and figure out what is going on here. But then Lewis goes on to say this, and this is clearly Lewis. Same, same book, same context. He says, this is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Matthew 24, 34. Yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day an hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels, which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance grow side by side. So Lewis said that what Yeshua said, this generation is embarrassing, and he calls it an error. C.S. Lewis, it's an error. Was Yeshua wrong? I can't accept that. And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be able to accept that either. Because if Yeshua's wrong, then we're, we're all wasting our time, okay? We're all wasting our time. But fortunately, Christ did keep His promise to come in the first century generation as He said He would. We've just misunderstood it. See, Christ's second coming occurred spiritually, the way it was intended at A.D. 70. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem was a physical event, but it was much more than a physical event. It was a time change from Old Covenant to New Covenant. It was the completion of the New Covenant. This highly verified historical event signaled that sin had finally been atoned for forever and that all Christians from generation to generation could live eternally without separation from God. He put an end to sin. Now, hopefully you're thinking. And if you're thinking, you say, well, if the Lord did come back in 8070, and here's a question I heard many times, how did the church miss it for all these years? How did the church miss it for all these years? I mean, it's, you know, a couple thousand years we've been getting it wrong. I used to answer that with, have you ever heard of the Reformation? That was a little bit bigger deal, I think. They're dealing with salvation and the Reformation. And we missed that for a lot of years, right? 1,500 years, the church is wrong. And all of a sudden, the Reformation comes. And now there's, there's never been, the church has never really focused on eschatology. Never had councils, never had deal, dealings with it. 
I think maybe they just thought they had it right, so they didn't mess around with it. I don't know. The problem here is one of preconceived ideas. It's because of the paradigms that we've developed. And, and we've developed these through movies, through other people saying things. You know, we, we don't come at this with a bare slate. We've already got input on, you know, this future coming and what it's going to be like. We think that second coming is an earth burning, heaven melting, life changing event. So we assume it hasn't happened. We're still here. I mean, when God comes, boom, the, everything's burned up and he starts all over. Just, you know, 2 Peter 3, post-toasties, the elements melt with a fervent heat, you know. And MacArthur says those elements are elements of matter. No, they're not. Okay? If you look at the word, stoichion, it's not talking about elements of matter. So I'm going to submit to you that either Scripture is wrong about the time of the second coming and thus not inerrant, or our paradigms are wrong about the nature of the second coming. Now, which one of those are you more comfortable with? Is the Scripture wrong, or do we get it wrong? <laughs> I'm going to go with number two there, okay? I think we've had some wrong paradigms about the nature, and so we've just got it incorrectly. And contrary to popular belief, nowhere do the Scriptures teach that the physical creation will be destroyed. It just doesn't teach that. Notice what Noah said, after the flood here. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I won't do it. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God destroyed the earth by water. He said, I won't ever do that again. And some folks will say, yep, he's not going to do it by water. He's going to do it by fire next time. Oh, I see. Well, that's much more comforting. I'd rather be burned than drowned. I mean, come on, people. Is he promising here to change his method of destroying everything? Or is there comfort? Is he trying to comfort him, saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to destroy it all again, like I did. Look at Psalms 148, 4 through 6. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, it shall not pass away. What decree did God make concerning the establishment of the heavens and earth that will never pass away? It's Genesis 8, 21. We just read it. I will never again destroy the earth as I have done. God can be trusted. He keeps His Word. He even gave us a sign as the rainbow to remind us. I'm not going to do that again, people. He said He was coming soon. I believe He meant it. I believe He did it. That's comforting to me. Now, I'm sure that you understand that if Christ returned in the first century, this is, this is what got me right away. Okay, I'm figuring all this out. Time statements, I agree. Christ returned, 80, 70, cool. That's good. And then I said, uh-oh. This means that we're living in the new heavens and new earth. And I was like, yuck. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not digging this. This is not all that good. Look at 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was sea no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So new heaven in a new earth, in a new city, the new Jerusalem. You know, this is hard for people to accept. Why? Again, because we have wrong ideas about things. 
All right? How can we be in the new heavens and new earth? It's easy to accept when you understand the new heavens and new earth is another term for the new covenant. They're synonyms, okay? Look at Galatians 4, 22 through 26. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. You've got to get this, okay? Two covenants he's talking about. That's what this is about, old and new. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That would be old covenant, right? She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she's our mother. So what exactly is this Jerusalem above who is our mother? Keep in mind the comparison here is between two covenants. Hagar, old covenant. Present Jerusalem. Jerusalem above is the new covenant. The heavenly Jerusalem represents the new covenant. Now look at 21.9, Revelation. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What's he going to show us? The bride, right? That's what he says. The wife of the Lamb. Who's the bride? That's the church. So this angel is showing Lazarus the wife of the Lamb. With that in mind, look at the next verse. He says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. I'm going to show you the bride, and he showed me the city. What's that tell us? The wife of the Lamb is the bride. The new the Jerusalem is the new covenant. The bride is the new covenant. These are connected. It's the church. It's the new covenant. It's the city of God. The writer of Hebrews points this out when he makes the comparison between Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. He said, well, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Now, the word and here after Mount Zion ought to be rendered even. Or that is the city of the living God. Mount Zion is the city of God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he goes on and says, so you come to Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, assembly of the firstborn, new covenant, they are all the same. New covenant believers. So people, we have a choice. We need to choose between tradition or scripture. And that choice should be easy. Tradition is written by men. They get it wrong. Scripture is not wrong. Let's just stick with the time statements. Now, again, if you decide to do this and go with the time statements and believe the prayer's view of eschatology, you're going against most all mainstream Christianity. Be careful who you talk to. Your friends will think you're nuts. They will write you off as cuckoo. Okay, they don't want anything to do with you. They, you know, I mean, I'm serious. This is serious to people. Because, you know, I've heard this so many times. You take away my hope. Really? You're hoping for the second coming? You missed it. (laughs) Got news for you. You missed it. Listen, to deny the fact of the second coming is to deny the inspiration of Scripture. You agree? The Bible teaches the second coming, so you can't deny it, right? Everybody agrees. All right? I believe that to deny the time statements that the Bible gives of the second coming is also to deny inspiration. You still agree? I mean, the time statements, you know, they lay it out. 
I believe they're just as clear as the fact of the second coming. Okay? Jumped ahead too quick. Let me just close by saying, if this view is new to you, I would just ask that you openly and honestly look at what it's saying. All right? Almost every book in the New Testament talks about a soon return of Yeshua. And it's really hard to make 2,000 years soon by any hermeneutic. The major issue to me in all this is the inspiration of Scripture. Because if I can't trust the Lord on the time statements, can I trust Him on anything else? We can't, we can't let that crack in there to destroy the times, to destroy the inspiration. And again, I just beg you, don't let tradition rob you of the precious truths which our Lord taught. Just encourage you, be a Berean. Look at what it says. I, this might change your whole view on what the second coming is. That's okay. If it didn't happen soon, then we got a problem. The atheists see it. People criticize it. They make fun of Christians because Christians don't see it. But, but the atheists and non-believers do. He said he's coming soon. The Lord taught he was coming soon. And Christians are like, yeah, but it's going to be soon. I'm like, what is your definition of soon? Because it was 2,000 years ago soon, it's still soon. Something's wrong there, people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I just think this is so clear, Lord. And I thank you for opening my eyes to the truth of it. Lord, help us to understand that we have to interpret Scripture in light of its original audience. We have to get into the mind of the first century believers and writers and understand what they're saying. Lord, this is clear to people who don't have preconceived ideas. Help us, Lord, to see the truth and help us to walk in it. Help us to rejoice in it. Father, I thank you for keeping your word. This just view gives me so much confidence. It's so positive. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right. (laughs) Cheryl? believed it then when did it get twisted like when did this yeah that's 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 a great question cheryl asked when you know obviously the first century believers believed it and and trusted that the lord would happen what happened you know after the destruction of jerusalem there's like a couple hundred years of silence you know when things just went dark people weren't writing you know and there were some people who saw it but for some reason it just i don't know it got neglected and it just Hmm. Got any thoughts on that? Everything that was written in that silence is stored in the Vatican. We can't get it. Want that thought? You got anything helpful? <laughs> I mean, let me phrase that again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You wanted something legit. <laughs> so, the easy way to explain it to people would it be better to like approach it from the way God deals with us is differently now? I mean, do you want to go get a little lamb or something? You know what I'm saying? There's definitely a difference between the two covenants. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and most people, they obviously believe we're in the New Covenant. They just don't, I don't think, connect all the dots. And there's just a lot of confusion. I don't, I don't know of any Christian who doesn't believe we're in the New Covenant. But they brought a lot of the old with them. You know, they haven't made the cutoff yet. We use the same modified. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was modified. That's the thing. The Lord, the Lord laid out, you know, the the nine commandments, and he left. You know, he didn't bring the commandment over to keep the Sabbath because he was the Sabbath rest. And so, um, on that subject, 
and maybe everyone understood what the second coming then and over the years of silence just didn't it wasn't important they were arguing more about the details salvation and, and things and just kind of got left behind because everybody understood it left behind huh? <laughs> <laughs> a play on words there yeah. left behind well that's true they were the church was dealing with all kinds of other issues i mean they dealt with the deity of christ and they you know they dealt with a lot of different things but they just never had a symposium a council on eschatology because I don't know, but I, some of the earlier writers see it. And you can find writers all throughout history who see some of the text clearly, but yet they don't put it all together. So, wasn't, isn't C.S. Lewis supposedly a Christian apologist? Yes. yes. Well, except for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, you know, I, I got to appreciate his honesty, but I mean, when you say he was an heir... Yeah. Um, maybe maybe you're the one in there. See, that's what you have to ask. Is God wrong here? Is it maybe I'm wrong? Maybe I'm seeing something wrong here. You know? But Christians cannot get over the fact that the second coming is future. It's just predominant in our culture. The churches are teaching it. The churches are using it to try to make motivate people to do stuff or whatever. You know? But it, it is just dominant out there. And then people who see it will go so far with it and say, okay, I do connect that with AD 70, but there's something else coming. And I'm like, that's great. Where's the verses that talk about that? Oh, the Lord forgot to write us about that. He just told us about the soon coming, not the far coming. That's implied. These are the same people that believe mainstream media, too. Well, for some, in some instances, but I, there's, you know, there are a lot of good Christians out there that just really... Confused about this. No, they're not. They're all in this room. <laughs> okay, um, here's a, a question I got from a listener. It says, I'm viewing uh, from Los Angeles, California. I'm sorry. <laughs> y'all got y'all know they cheated because there's no way you Californians would have voted Newsom back in again. They're just I just can't believe that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sorry for you guys, but it says, I find your eschatological case convincing, but how do you explain the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13? I've got a couple messages online that deal with Revelation, and I talk about the mark of the beast there, and I explain what it is. So I would encourage you just to go there. I think Nero Caesar was the beast. The Mark 666, Nero, Kaiser, Caesar, and I think he was the beast, and all the contemporary writers viewed him as the beast. Um, so that's, you can see that there, though. Whoever gets the mark will not buy or sell. That's one thing that keeps Christians from switching over to preterism. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would be a hindrance at all, because, it, but I hear today, you know, this, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Oh, yeah. Because you can't, and you know, hey, they're saying, you're not going to be able to buy or sell if you don't get it. Right? Restaurants are not letting you in. I mean, and Christians are taking that and they're running with it. Okay? And people, wow, we got some vivid imaginations, you know. Um, again, again, if you go back, go back to my messages on Revelation, the couple that I did there, I just did an introduction, but it, it kind of explains that. And I, and I deal with the mark of the beast in there. And I think that'll be helpful to you. It's kind of a longer answer. On the website, you have that whole page of the last days. Yeah, on the website there's a whole page deals with end times, last days. 
Um, okay, I said, someone says, I think that people are scared to accept because it seems to change everything. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <laughs> it does change everything. And I, I've heard people say to me with excitement, I got a whole new Bible. I mean, like this is exciting, not in a negative way. And now partial preterism says there is still a moral law than the return. Have you seen that response also? <clears throat> there, you know, God's, the law of Christ is always there. I mean, God, he wants us to live for him, to honor him. You know, you got people who are taking preterism way past, you know, talk about hyper, you know, going beyond. They consider us partial preterists because they're the full preterists because they believe it's all over. It all ended and nothing pertains to us at all. What an encouraging view. <laughs> The Bible doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. It's all done. It's so okay. So the transition for forty years, God was building and shaping the church. So at the end of the forty years, He could say, "All done." I tell you, it makes no sense to me. That's for sure. Can you talk about? I can talk about anything. Okay. You missed a word here in the question, though. Okay, you you missed intelligently. <laughs> can you talk about, can you talk about the disagreement between 68 and 90 being when revelation was written yes again in the two messages i've done in the book of revelation i deal with the time but i would recommend gentry's book called before jerusalem fell it's about 400 pages and it's strictly on the timing of the book of Revelation, on when it was written. And he goes to great, great lengths to show you when it was written. I have a friend, Zane Hodges, he's passed away now, he's a personal friend of mine, he was on the translating committee for the New King James Version, okay? And he told me that everybody on that translating committee believed that all Scripture was written prior to AD 70. And these guys, they're dispensationalists, they're not preterists by any stretch, Zane was not a preterist by any stretch of the imagination. But he believed that everything was written. They all believed that prior to 8070. Hmm. I think the 90 date is fabricated, okay, just to try to, you know. But it's, a, it's what people go with. But when you look at the evidence, and again, I can't think of anything better than Gentry's book. Because, you know, if you, <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, okay. But if you want to dig in, um, it, is, it is great. What was the verse or the moment you no longer doubted the truth of preterism? Well, Trevor, it was more, as I look back on it, it was kind of like a week, couple, a couple week long thing. God had just sent several things that happened in my life, okay? Uh, first of all, I had posted, this was like the internet was almost new at this time, you know, back in 97. And I had posted some things on the internet on Revelation as a partial preterist. Mm. Well, some guy contacted me and said, do you take it all the way? And I'm like, take what all the way? You know, the coming. You, you know, he, that was the first time I heard about it. The Lord returned. And I'm like, well, this guy's a whack job, you know? <laughs> no, I didn't take it all the way, you know? Okay, and then a guy I used to work with and I hadn't seen for 12 years, he called me. I hear you're a preterist. I'm like, yeah, I don't know where you heard that from. Yeah. He goes, do you take it all the way? And I'm like... What is it with these people? <laughs> these people are crazy, you know. He goes, I got some books. I, and I told him, no, I, what are you talking about? So I got some books I'll bring you. Okay. 
That same week, I went to my mother's house for dinner. I get over there, she goes, I got a question for you. She opens her Bible to Matthew 16, 27, 28. Some of you standing here will not taste death. And she goes, what do you think this means? Like, Mom, I think it might mean just what it says. <laughs> and she looked at me like, really? And I'm like, I know that's strange, but that might. Well, this guy brought the books over. I wasn't home. He dropped them off. And they sat, I can picture them, on the edge of my desk. I was afraid to look at them. No kidding. I was afraid. Because I knew this is going to change everything. And by everything, I meant... <laughs> My life, my job, my future, maybe my marriage <laughs> came close. This will change everything. So I ignored them for two weeks. I mean, they just sat there, and I would, they were like taunting me. I would sit, I would sit on my couch, and I'd walk around. And, I, and finally, I picked them up, and I started reading them. And I was like, oh, my word. It's true. And I was done. I was, okay, I'm good. I'm here. Now what do we do? You know, who do I even talk to about this? Well, Rich was the first one I talked to about it, you know, and... You know, Rich had, at that time, had most of the New Testament memorized. Wow. And so it didn't take him long to start running things through his head and goes, hey, this makes perfect sense. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm not totally nuts, you know. So that's, that's kind of how it happened for me. But, oh, man, it got ugly. It got ugly. I mean, the church, they called us everything under the sun. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was a lot harder on my wife than on me because she saw people attacking me that, you know, we had ministered to for years and years, and now I was a lunatic, and I was out there, and, you know, I'd lost my mind. All, all probably true, but it had nothing to do with preterism. Do what? Yeah, I was a heretic. I know. I was, whew. I didn't even believe the Bible anymore. They got the people together, and they threw this across the room. Dave Curse doesn't even believe in this anymore. I'm like, this is the whole basis of my argument. Okay? You know? And they lied about stuff. They made stuff up. But, you know, it was like... They did a good job. I, I was impressed, really. That they, they mounted a good fear campaign against us. And they warned everybody, do not talk to him. If you talk to him... See, they said I could convince... I could sell ice to Eskimos, you know? And I'm like, if I'm so convincing, why are you people not listening to me? You know? I mean, this is, just doesn't make any sense. But they warned people, do not... And so they were afraid. They would not talk to him. One of the ladies, she kind of caught on what was going on. So she starts, she's digging in the Bible and she's finding things. And she went to the elders. You know what they told her? Stop listening to Dave Curtis. And she said, I'm not. I haven't listened to anything. But I'm finding this in the scriptures. They said, stop reading your Bible. <laughs> I'm not lying. I, I swear to God, the elders of this church told this lady, stop reading your Bible. And she did for about a week or so. And she goes, this is absolutely nuts. They cannot tell me not to read my Bible. That's how far they went. And I, that, I think that was a good tactic because that's where you're going to get this stuff from. If you read your Bible, you're going to end up here. Okay? Yeah. Mardia, Mardia Harden says, Christian missed the second coming the same way the Hebrews missed the first one. Yeah. Why did the Hebrews miss the first one? They wanted a Messiah who would physically take over and rule. Yeah. They didn't want, no, this spiritual stuff, nah, we're not interested in that. Take over, get us free from Rome. Same thing. It's exactly the same thing. I, all right, oh, boy, I agree with you here. She says, or I'm not sure who, who's writing this, but say, I struggle with the magnitude of evil in the world today. And it seems like there is a realm of evil operating. It, and it seems 
Like there is a realm that evil operates. I, you know, I agree with you. And I constantly struggle with my view of the destruction of Satan and demons because of the world. But I'm like, okay, i got to go by what I see or go by what the Bible says. Okay, there's evil out there. There's no doubt there's evil out there. And, you know, what used to trouble me was it seemed like the evil was all organized. But now I understand. This organized evil is called the deep state. And, I mean, there is a, there is a group of men, high-powered men that are evil to the core. And operating in this. And stuff that goes on is absolute. We're seeing in this country at a greater pace than ever. But it doesn't change the scripture. People have wrestled. You know, we read the scripture in Genesis. The heart of man is evil from his youth. Okay? We're corrupt beings. James says every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We don't need a devil. We don't need demons. We're just evil. Apart from God. They're evil to the core. <laughs> this, is, this is evident. And let me tell you something. The more power you get, the more money you get, the more evil you get. You know what? Bill Gates, he's got all the money in the world, and yet he's upset because there's too many people on earth. He could go buy a country and throw everybody out of it and have it all to himself. He could. But yet he wants to depopulate. He's a eugenist. I want to cut out people. I want to get rid of people. Too many of you. Sick. It's absolutely sick. Uh, Bob Cruikshank says, Gentry has a shorter, easier to read version called The Beast of Revelation. Both books are available for free online in PDF. There you go. So if you want to look up... I didn't know Gentry had a, a shorter version. The Beast... Of Revelation, you can find it on PDF online. Deals with the timing of the Book of Revelation. Do what? Oh, Jeff says you can get it from American Vision. Someone, someone writes says I was kicked out of the church for it. LOL. I know I was kicked out too, and it wasn't LOL. <laughs> I wasn't laughing out loud. I, uh, you know. It's sad that this is a you know a great division within the church, mm-hmm. and you know the dispensationalists they don't like us but they deal with it. But the partial preterists hate us. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not I'm not joking. They don't think we're Christians. Okay, again, dispensationalists for the most part, oh yeah, you 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 believe differently. The partial preterists like you guys are heretics. You're not even believers, mm-hmm. and so they have taken eschatology and made it part of the gospel. And I'm like, how in the world do you connect it? You show me the verse. Believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and make sure your eschatology is not preterism, and you shall be saved. I must say it somewhere, because there's a lot of people who hold that position. Okay? Again, this is different. This is very different from what the church holds, what the church believes, but I just think it's true. And it's been 25 years. i got to tell you, the first year... I studied, oh, I studied everything I'd get my hands on. Not to prove this, to disprove it. I want it out. <laughs> I mean, I really, I just, I, my desire, I want to be normal, Lord. Why can't I just be normal? Why can't I be like everybody else? My wife says that too. Why can't you be normal? I don't know. I'm just wired this way. But I try, and so I would be excited when I found an argument. 
you know, proof that preterism is wrong. I'd be like, oh man, I'd be so excited to read that. And they'd say something like, just look in this, up in the heavens. The stars in the sky are still there. Preterism's wrong. And I'm like, wow, that is a convincing argument. <laughs> I'm like, boy, this, this just pushed me more into preterism. I'm like, you morons. You know, understand what he's talking about. You know? Uh, frustrating. This is not... This does not deal with the gospel. This does not. This is not about salvation. This is a view of end times. I think it's really good to hold this view because I think it frees you from a lot of things. I think it's very freeing. I think it's very encouraging. Okay. Yes, the world is a mess right now. That's okay. We're still in the new covenant. We're in the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what it says in Revelation that people seem to miss when we're talking about the new heaven and the earth. It says in outside are dogs. Outside what? Outside the city. See, we're in the new covenant, but everybody's not in the covenant. And outside the covenant, there's dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and whosoever worketh the lie. They're still there. We're in the city. We're in the covenant. They're out there. And you know they're out there. And we see them all the time. That's why there's so much evil. How can they be there if the world has been destroyed? That's right. If the world's been destroyed and it's all gone and we're just in the, you know, Utopia state where there's nothing but believers floating around on harp, with harps playing on clouds. You know, if that's all it is, then where are these people outside the city who are evil? All right, I know. I could just, like you said, can you talk about? Yes, I can. <laughs> all right, I'm going to close.